Welcome everyone to the weekly spotlight from Diversity Apps. My name is Kabir Seth. Our spotlights haven't been as weekly as I would like, but it is the summer, um, and so I've decided to likely go on a every two week um, spotlight podcast going forward. Um, I think it's better for everyone. It helps with scheduling guests, etc. If this is the first time joining us, Diversity in Apps is a grassroots coalition. We're made up of researchers, producers, and educators. And our mission is to raise awareness and engage in research about the need for inclusive, equitable, and diverse children's media. So this podcast is one of the ways we do that. Every week we send out a newsletter. Um, It's usually every Sunday. And we highlight the articles that we found during the week that really focus on diversity and inclusion around the children's media space. And I pick some of them to discuss and really hope that listening to it entice you guys to go out and read it and share it with like-minded folks. Um, In addition to the articles that we talk about from the newsletter, I also like to welcome people on to our podcast um, that are doing um, work around diversity in the children's media space. This week, I had Anne Glick on. She's the co-founder of One Globe Kids. This is a really great app that's focused on children getting excited about interacting with diverse people and in diverse contexts. So that's coming up a little bit later. Um, But first, I want to talk about a couple articles. So the first article I want to talk about is in The Atlantic. Um, it's called She-Ra and the Fight Against the Token Girl. And what it talks about is um, actually the time when I was growing up in the 80s when uh, kids' cartoons were at a high point. Um, you watch Saturday morning cartoons, and they talk about a lot of them that I watched. The Smurfs, He-Man, Ghostbusters, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, etc. So I actually le- learned quite a bit in this article that you know, obviously I didn't realize as a, whatever, six or seven or eight year old kid growing up, um, the, the Smurfs was the most, it was really the first, um, popular kids cartoon and they had one female character, the Smurfette. And, um, the part that they really go through is that all of these, um, Saturday morning cartoons or cartoons in general had a female character, but usually the character was not doing anything, was not interesting, um, and really just played on tropes of, of beauty and, you know, being female. Um, it was really ridiculous, um, and so, you know, the, the one of the lines in the, in the article is really, when it came to women characters, it seems the writers ran out of their otherwise abundant creativity and resorted to leaning on old troops. So, um... So what happens is they launch She-Ra in, in 1985, um, and the show was really the mirror of, of He-Man, and what they mean by that was um, you had a squad of, you know, He-Man sort of had these squad of allies that he worked with, so She-Ra had this squad of, of allies as well, but these allies were female in She-Ra's universe as opposed to male. And, you know, the, they talk about how probably none of the kids... Um, cartoons other than She-Ra passed the Bechtel test. Um, and so the other piece of this is having women interacting with women meant that, you know, it really showed that the, these va- the value of them 
is is was not based on how they interacted with men like all the other shows um so what happens is it 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 doesn't do very well um he-man and shira were usually put together you know there was a one hour power hour which i remember growing up and um you know shira had had terrible nielsen ratings compared to uh to he-man and while they struggled on tv what the article talks about is also struggling in the toy aisle so what they designed for the she-ra um action figure was sort of a cross between an action finger figure and a, a female doll um that that girls played with and so that meant it had hair that you could comb and etc et and so um not great sales it was sort of stuck in the aisle um, with Barbie, which was a great, you know, $350 million sales of Barbie consistently. And, um, you know, Shiro was sort of in this aisle and sometimes it just couldn't be found. And so what happened is it, it, it shut down after two seasons. They, they only made two seasons of the show. And over the next 20 to 30 years, you basically saw kids shows continue to be male dominated. Ren and Stimpy, they sort of go through the entire list and then what came along was the powerpuff girls and what a lot of people pointed to was like okay this was you know the x-files had scully and sort of xena had become very popular in the 90s and so they that like led the way for the powerpuff girls and she-ra has sort of been ignored and and forgotten um so it's a really interesting article i think what was sort of sad about it is that you know, it took 30 years then for something else to come along, for Powerpuff Girls to come along. And it's so scary to think that if someone goes out on a limb and sort of makes an investment or chooses to have something that's so different from, from the male-dominated or whatever is working, not even, let's say it's, you know, male-dominated or not male-dominated, whatever's working, if it doesn't work, it sort of, this door just gets slammed shut and you know, it, it doesn't open again for another 30 years. So, um, interesting article. It links out to a lot of research, including the, and, and as well as articles, as, as well as the Lego one that, um, that we had in the newsletter a couple weeks ago. So definitely check it out. Um, the second article, um, is, is from quartz.com and it talks about a study done at BYU, um, that, is is focused on Disney princesses and so um, what it basically did was try to take it's a very small sample it's like 200 kids I believe and um, determine you know which uh, which kids play with with princess toys for a majority of of the toys that they play with so 61% of girls play with princess toys at least once a week compared to 4% of boys so um, what they found, which was concerning, was that um, girls who interacted with princess toys displayed a stronger gender stereotypical behavior a year after. So what what does that look like? Um, it was in it was evidence in girls' desire to look like princesses, as well as a lack of confidence. I think obviously the second one is a little bit more concerning than the first, um, and so um, you know the the study is is obviously very concerning and what they found is this has long-term impact or this can have long-term impact and you know they, they obviously haven't done 
done this study was confined to a small subset of of children but what they have I guess a related study has shown that women grown women who identified themselves or self-identified themselves as princesses um, tend to give up more easily on challenging tasks um, less likely to want to work and more focused on superficial qualities so basically the things that you don't want um, in your children uh, boy or girl and so um, I think obviously reading this I found it concerning as someone who has a daughter but also just um, it was a small study and you know I, I'd like to certainly see um, a bigger study and sort of what that means um, princess sales are a huge money maker for for Disney I think they are doing their best um, or trying to address some of some of these concerns um, one of the things that the article talked about that I thought was very interesting again I, I said it was a smaller study an incredibly small subset obviously of boys uh, in the study played with princess toys and watched their movies weekly um, and those boys actually developed better body self-esteem and were kinder to others so this incredibly small percentage four percent of the boys who play with princess toys at least once a week actually had higher self-esteem and were kinder to others so um, so there was a little bit of, of benefit there but um, I don't have access to the, to the full study. I'd love to have um, the researcher come on and and sort of talk about it a little bit more. And like I said, I'd love to see a bigger sample size. So um, so those are the two articles this week. Um, definitely check them out in on our website in our newsletter. And with that, let's get to my discussion with Ann Glick. Okay, folks, we're at the favorite part of my podcast where I get to talk to someone who is going through the journey of, of creating a fantastic or organization. We have Ann Glick with us, the inventor of One Globe Kids. And what is One Globe Kids? It is a technology created to allow kids to feel safe, happy, and excited about interacting with diverse people and in diverse contexts. Ann, thanks for coming on. It's a pleasure. Hi. How, uh, how are you on this Monday? I'm great, actually. That's great. Uh, so, I'm in the Netherlands, and it's I know. nighttime, but it still it stays late here until like probably a quarter to eleven. Very nice, just just like New York in the summer. It's uh, yeah, beautiful. We're getting, we're getting a lot of light, so it's, it's kids get to play in the park. So tell me, tell me a little bit about One Globe Kids before we go into sort of the app and the technology. Let's talk specifically about the the sort of the problem that you um, are trying to address. Okay, uh, so I come, I guess, to technology and apps from maybe a different corner. So my background is in international development. So I spent um, quite a bit of my career living and working overseas. I worked, um, I guess, first in Yemen with refugees, mostly from Somalia, okay. um, and then in the Congo, running HIV/AIDS prevention programs and. Um, you know, that's what I studied also, grassroots development. And so... And so this, these programs, this was right out of college? You, uh, you were in... Um, I went out of, I guess out of college, I went to Yemen. And then okay. um, after grad school, I went to Africa. I see. Okay. And uh, yeah, I, I think it gives you a different perspective, perspective. on the world. <laughs> I think so, yeah. <laughs> so, so basically, I moved from 
Kinshasa, which is in the Democratic Republic of Congo. And okay. it's uh, when I lived there, it was a city of nine million. Um, and Congo has just been through a really rough time of it. Um, right. And the people are fantastic. I had really interesting colleagues that I got to know really well and their families. And at the same time, you also just see such extreme poverty that I hadn't um, worse than anything I could, you could imagine. Sure. And um, we were working with high-risk groups in our H- HIV AIDS prevention program. So mm-hmm. really you get to see people who are just absolutely struggling. Yeah. Um, and I moved from there to basically Manhattan. <laughs> <laughs> you know? <laughs> it's a little different, yeah. It was, um, and so... That was that was a little bit of a shock since I'm from Wisconsin in the first place. Okay. But um, and I had my first child when we were living in New York, and for so many of my friends who lived in New York and hadn't traveled as much as I had, um, it was you know. And of course, wherever you are, feels like that's the way life is. And you know, anything you get used to, that's what feels familiar to you. Um, for sure. And it feels like the, a bubble. I think, I mean, like I live in Manhattan and it, it definitely feels, I know that I live um, in a bubble, but even, even the fact that I know it doesn't necessarily mean that I recognize everything that comes with that bubble. Well, I mean, I think it, no matter where you are, like, you know, I'm living in a bubble now too. Sure. Sure. <laughs> and I think the, um, but for me, the importance was finding a way for my kids to grow up being able to, I wanted them to look at everybody as an equal. Right. And um, I had, I guess, been working in development and really um, felt like we need to have a way of, have a, a mentality where we design our policies and our um, make choices on a high and, and a daily level um, that, that reflect that we are all equals. It doesn't matter what kind of wealth you're born into, what your situation is. It's, you know, I've always been a fan of John Rawls. Mm-hmm. And um, he talks about this veil of ignorance where, yeah, yeah so that that for me um, was, was really important for Sebastian. Right. And uh, Sebastian's your, your oldest? Sebastian's my son, yeah. So okay. um, he was three when, when this when this started. And so I was trying to find a way that we could come at, I guess, the questions of poverty in like a big sense Mm -hmm. with new ideas, because we should be able to make more progress than we're making in solving this. Um, And I really felt like we kind of have to walk it all the way back. Um, You know, people of my generation, myself included, we by this point, you know, I turned 40, I have a certain way of looking at the world and I can change it as much as I want, but everybody has a certain level of implicit bias. Yeah. And um, the way you can really start to address that is walking it back to really young kids. And so I I wanted to make a product that targeted really young kids that would give him you know, living where he was, knowing the languages that he knew, being a young child that you can't just, you know, throw out into the giant world. Right. But he still had this, like, huge curiosity about the world. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to sculpt the way he experienced it in a way that made him open to everybody. 
Right. So your focus was really there. There's your belief that sort of like there is immense poverty in the world and that um, that poverty to sort of focus people um, on that issue really comes down to seeing those people as as equals. And part of that comes from eliminating the bias that um, that they may hold. Is that? Yeah. And it's not, it's not, I don't, it's not like seeing those people in a certain way. It's just that it's the, like in your core, I believe that you need to believe everybody should have an equal opportunity and an equal, equal shake and get a, get, get help when they need it. (laughs) (laughs) So, so how long ago was, uh, like when, when did this idea, when was it born? And I guess how old is it now? So the idea was born, I guess, in the fall of 2009. Okay, okay. Um, and I then I went to Haiti to try and make the first um, story. In okay. um, was that going to Haiti? Was that post earthquake, pre earthquake? Well, see, that's all part of the story. Basically, oh. I um, thought I was going to make a book. Uh-huh. I thought I was going to make a series of books that were loosely based on this childhood book I had been given about a girl named Joyce from okay. South Africa. Uh-huh. And, um, you, you know, I felt like I knew Joyce as a child because I saw her doing all these things in photos with her family. And I looked all over New York in the bookstores and the libraries, and I couldn't find anything that would offer Sebastian that kind of in-depth experience. Sure. Um, and, um, so I thought, well, you know, I have a lot of grassroots experience. Maybe this is something that I can do. I can contribute in this way. And so I, I went to Haiti um, to work for a nonprofit on a consulting job. Mm-hmm. And um, while I was there, well, prior to that, I had made contact with people who wanted to be in the series. And so after, you know, um, two weeks of working, I went up into the hills and got to spend time with Valdo and Gabu and came mm-hmm. back and started writing a book. And so is this, were you happened. doing this all solo right, right now, right then? Were you doing it all solo by yourself? Yeah. yeah. Oh, I mean, okay. when I was in Haiti, I had a translator. Okay. Okay. But, um, yeah, I was doing it all, you know, I thought I was writing a book. Right. Right. <laughs> You're bootstrapping. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and then I came back and the earthquake happened and I, um, I felt strongly that instead of, I mean, what the earthquake was, it was a horrible, horrible, tragic thing that happened. But um, I also wanted to contribute to the conversation that Haiti is, you know, the people that live there are also just like us. It's not just right. only awful, sad you know, things. stories. Yeah. Right. Yeah. There's also, let's just, we're all human. Let's look at each other and treat each other as that. And then address those issues with that core belief first. Sure. And so, um, I, you know, I looked into publishing it as quickly as I could. And the lead time for publishing a book is just really long. <laughs> yes. And yeah. at the same yeah. time, I was like walking around Manhattan and seeing for the first time people giving their iPhones to their kids. So, uh-huh. um, light bulb went on. Light bulb went on, <laughs> <laughs> and there weren't a lot of kids' apps at the time at all. Um, right. I, you know, I contacted a couple of the developers that I saw um, in the app store, mm-hmm. and um, 
they didn't really seem to be anything special. And so I, I ended up connecting with a, you know, a web developer who was all, you know, it was like a brand new field, right? Right, so right, yeah. Nobody knew what nascent. they were doing, yeah. but it was like this guy who also had kids who had, you know, made a poem of his wife into an app and we connected on, I guess, just like, a, you know, an ideas level. Sure. And um, I basically hired him to turn the first two stories into an app. I see. Into individual apps. Okay. And then uh, from then on, I very quickly knew so, I didn't want it so to be just, just to one. go into a little bit more detail what these stories are about. I, I guess the the stories um, really stories talk, is yeah, yeah, maybe not the right word. No, no, no I, th I think <laughs> I mean, they are. What well, just talk a little bit more about like what what they are exactly. In okay, terms of, so this the 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 idea is that children should be able to grow up with pictures in their mind that they know somebody who's really different from them. So I don't know if you ever watched Ally McBeal. Did you hear I, that television show? I, I mean, I've heard, yeah, I know the, I know the show. I didn't watch it. That, okay. That so this is kind of an aside, but anyway, she chooses like a theme song for herself and I've kind of chosen like a motto for myself. Okay. Yeah. I remember and, when it was really popular to choose a theme song for yourself. Yes. So yeah. <laughs> This is not about my song, but about, like <laughs> my motto. Right. And it's just I I realized after you know so many years working in different places and then going back home and trying to translate that what I was experiencing and how that was actually so similar to what my friends or my family were going through. We all had landlords. We all you know had jobs and we all got to work and I just was doing it you know, in Yemen or in you know, right. someplace really different, but it was right. all, so it was this idea of like trying to figure out how to make the foreign feel familiar and how to translate that experience into a way that people can adopt it and understand it and, you know, it, that it can be not scary. Sure. And so um, that was kind of the the thought behind what I was doing. So and that was that was your motto then, make the foreign feel familiar? Make the foreign feel familiar, okay. yeah. Okay, that's and that's um, Or basically the idea that something is foreign because it's not yet familiar. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah, uh, I think it like parallels sort of the, that idea of like you need to sort of walk a mile in their shoes or sort of, you know, um, see how they live. I, I think that's like what um, – what the stories show, right? Um, is and it's 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 actually then the idea is to go um, not just to show, but we we try to basically for young children simulate friendship. So right. you have a friend who's really different than you. Yeah, and we do it so through these very, um, I guess, in depth stories. So. Right. Yeah, I mean, I, I th talk a little bit more about the Haiti story because I like I I loved how this this was like how the story is is told and then what are the like sort of um, you know how y you talk about their their typical day and then how you know what he does on the weekend and then there's a little bit more into you know there's words sprinkled in there his his common languages sprinkled in there um, and then there's yeah further so activities. I use like a lot of techniques basically. Um, it's kind of supposed to be like an immersion, you right. know, like a cultural immersion, but from right. the couch. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
Exactly. So, That's exactly the right word. Yeah. Everything, all of the, the images that are in it, all of the photos that we've taken are all centered on, so in Valdo, in Haiti, on Valdo or Gabu, the, the two children. Right. And um, everything is, is supposed to be from their perspective. So the stories are written in first person. So Valdo is actually talking to whoever's using the app, the child. Right. And, right. Um, you know, because I like languages, I always try and add languages, uh, you know, words from the, their actual language into the story. Right. And then we design these extra features like the tell me about yourself feature yeah. <laughs> where you then can, you know, you've spent, so we, you've spent, you know, like a whole day with Valdo. You were there when he got up in the morning, you went with him to walk to school, you were at right. school, you did all this stuff with him. But now he's also curious about you. So he asks questions and then you can tell him about your life. Um, and again, this is, you know, for really young children. So it's not actually going to Valdo. It's a simulated experience, but we know that in friendship, like that sharing of stuff, if you think, and it makes total sense. Any any friends that you have, think about how you got to know them and yeah. how the more you knew about them, the closer you felt. And researchers have studied this and they know that that sharing is, that builds empathy and trust. Mm-hmm. And those are like the two ingredients for, key friendship. ingredients for breaking yeah. down bias and prejudice. Right. If you feel that for another group. Right. So, we know that cross-group friendship is like one of the most powerful ways to overcome prejudice. So, did you so we start, designed the app so, so, to Sorry do to that. interrupt. So when you were yeah. creating, when you, so your first idea was sort of like, I'm going to write a book about this. The publishing lead time is insane. Did you then need to sort of t- like, as you were realizing, okay, we can turn it into an app, then the did you have to tweak sort of the story as it was written or did you always imagine that sort of like this is going to be an immersion experience in a book form and now we're it was that- always going to be an immersion experience okay okay so i went to this small liberal arts school called goshen college in okay. indiana and um as part of my study i spent a semester in the ivory coast uh-huh. so i was like 20 and you know we lived with families and um it was this really intense experience because you yeah. had to completely blend in. Right. It wasn't like an exchange where, you know, you could do your own thing. We weren't allowed right. to bring dresses. We were only allowed to wear dresses because that's what Ivorian women wear. Mm-hmm. We were, and um, I found that to be a really, that's kind of been like my guiding light <laughs> yeah. because I am trying to, That's that was the closest I could get as a, like, a white woman from the Midwest to walking in someone else's shoes was to yeah. live it with them right. and to talk and be and be friends with them. And so right. um, when I started, that was always my intention, but using technology, just it opened, it just, it made so many more possibilities. Yeah, right? for sure. I you mean, can like just make it so yeah, much more there's real. There's so much you can do. I think that's like the, the great thing about the app is like you're saying is that, this ability to um, you sort of hear about this the the kids day and then sort of the app then asks you okay what do you like to do and what do you eat and sort of uh, in this way that's sort of like that's how a friendship grows like what's your favorite food etc and so um, I think obviously that is not something you can do with a book that you would have been able to do with um, with a published book 
Um, so that I think that's um, that's super fascinating. And then there's sort of he shares words, right? Like how do you count in Creole, et cetera, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So then you can. Well, I think the one of the powerful things about using technology is that you can combine the visual and the audio, mm-hmm. and that makes it a much more real experience because children then associate that voice with Valdo. Valdo's actually talking to them. Right, right. Um, and Valdo teaches them how to say hello in right. Creole. And then yeah. he, he can listen to them say it. <laughs> and then <laughs> at the end, he wants to hear your conversation with him. Right. And then you and can you say, can, yeah. Yeah, you yeah. can put your picture in the app. So right. it's all about creating a sense of closeness and familiarity. So the child who's using the app sees them and their picture close to that of Valdo. They hear each other's voices. And I suppose that was one of the tricky things, right? Because Valdo only speaks Creole. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, I found kids in New York who also spoke Creole. I see. And I was wondering how you did that because I was curious as I was going through it. I was like, is this really his voice? Okay. No, it can't, it can't be, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and... Um, and actually, you know, that was that's part of that's been a really fun part process, part of the process for me because um, the app you can also set it to listen to it in French or in Dutch, mm-hmm. um, and so for each of those languages, we found a different child to read it, and the same child who reads the story of Valdo cannot also read any of the other stories because that would break the authenticity of it um, for. Th- of the experience yeah. for the user. Right, right. So we've worked with, you know, I think 27 and counting child narrators. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And, um, and that in itself is so interesting and, and, um, and fun to find these families who are interested in doing this and yeah, why so, they're interested. So how, like, you know, you, this started out as a sort of solo project. How big is your team now? Um, well, we have two of us who are working, um, basically full time on it. And then we have a board of five, um, and we're working with, you know, then we have, um, a partnership with the university of Kent. And through that, we have a PhD student who is doing research exclusively using our materials with schools in the UK. Okay. So um, I want I want to get to the Kent thing in a, in a minute. So you guys launched. So what when when did you launch the the app? Like when did it go into the App Store? The One Globe Kids app, I believe it went in in 2013. Okay. Something like that. Okay. Okay. And then the education one in 2014. It's been and, it's like I've had this really long you know, it's kind of, I guess, like writing a play or writing a movie. You have this really <laughs> right. long development time yeah. because in the meantime, you know, we're, I traveled to a lot of countries and mm-hmm. gathered the stories and then crafting, you never know what's going to happen with kids. Right. That's, that's, right. that's part of the exciting part, I guess, about, <laughs> and the challenging part. But we, we, um, we focus on what we call like the universal themes of childhood and yeah. they're basically, you know, stuff every kid does. Yeah. Getting up in the morning with your family, that kind of thing. And so we work with the families to plan out what, 
you know, when I'm going to basically hang out with them. Sure. And, um, and then afterwards we craft it into a story that has like a start and a finish and hopefully a little bit of a act, you know, plot arc. Right. Right. And so you're, you're a lot of the app, like you're saying, or the app itself is really built on, on this research. So what, um, sort of what have you used as sort of the basis to, to develop the app in terms of the research, um, to build empathy and trust, as you mentioned? Um, well, it's the, I guess it's, it permeates kind of everything, right? Mm -hmm. From the, the style of the photography. So it's very focused on the, on the child. Um, and that's, that's also really important depending on where you are. You know, when I was in Haiti, um, I certainly was not making a story about a poor child. I was making a story about a child who's very loved. Right, right. He happens to not have running water or electricity, and that's not his story. That's just yeah. part of his, you know, his life. And um, so there's there's a lot of care taken in how the story is presented, how the the visuals are presented, um, and that's just the story part. Then the additional features of the, you know, the sharing. So. In psychology terms, when they research that, it's called mutual self-disclosure. So when you take turns sharing about yourselves, yeah, uh, and that's part of it, um, right? That's and, yeah, that's sort of what I want. Like you talk about, there's inner group contact, then there's extended contact, and then you have imagined contact. When uh, so, like, can you kind of talk through what those three mean? Like, what's inner group contact? Sure. So inner group contact. Um, so it's basically this intergroup contact theory, uh, was something that was developed after world war two when Mm -hmm. people wanted to understand what is going on between these groups that don't get along or have extreme hate or, um, we wanted to understand. And in the States in the time, there was a lot of research between, you know, um, under trying to understand how you can foster better relation race relations. And at first, it was intergroup contact. We'll just fix it as soon as long as people get together. That's all you need. Um, and and that pretty quickly they realized, okay, it's actually more complicated than that. There are, you know, optimal conditions that can be more likely to encourage positive relations between people of different groups. And I think about groups like really widely. You know, mm-hmm. we can be talking about race, we can be talking about religious groups, linguistic groups, border class, groups, but even yeah. school, yeah, class groups, even, you know, different schools that di- don't get along or mm-hmm. or tribes. And, you know, I, I see this. Sort of like however bit, people divide themselves yeah. is how and it you, happens yeah. in every country, in every town, everywhere. Right. And um, so that, so direct contact is, Direct intergroup contact is like face-to-face contact between people from different groups. Mm-hmm. Um, and so where are you from? Where did you grow up? I grew up in Michigan in the Midwest. Okay. Yeah. Well, so, you know, there's a Michigan-Wisconsin rivalry. So maybe right. I don't have any <laughs> friends from Michigan. <laughs> so maybe right. you're my first Michigan friend, right? Right. So then I think, okay, you know, actually, that's pretty fun. I think I could probably be friends with somebody else from Michigan, too. And right. you know what? If I'm friends with somebody from Michigan, 
I could probably be friends with somebody from Indiana. And, and it, it kind of spreads out from that, right? So that would be direct contact. Yeah. And um, so when they talk about indirect contact, they talk about extended or vicarious contact. And that would be like, um, you know, a friend of mine from Wisconsin sees me being friends with Kabir from Michigan. And right. they think, oh, well, if Anne's friends with him, maybe I could be friends with someone from Michigan, too. Right. right. <laughs> so that's the kind of like extended contact. And often I you see, see that in like in books or movies, you can see it play out and they've done some research on how that influences you. Yeah. But, um, and there definitely are influences, but they're just not as strong. Right. right. And of course you can have negative intergroup contact if there's some kind of conflict or you say your first experience is, is not positive. Yeah. That can negatively influence your perception of others and make you less likely to want to engage or less likely to be open. So for us, in designing the stories, it's very important that the first experience is positive. I see. And then there's imagine contact. And so imagine contact is um, something that they started studying only in 2009. And it's, it's pretty recent, I mean, in terms of you think of how old this research is. But it's the idea that by imagining myself interacting with someone, say, from Michigan, mm-hmm. I can have more positive ideas about them. And they've been able to show that having imagining contact with someone from another group, you imagining that you are interacting with someone from another group has, has numerous results. But the most key ones in the research they've done with children is that it improves your attitudes towards people in the other group it improves your perception of similarities between yourself and persons in another group, in that right. other group, and then imp- increases your willingness to interact with people from another group. So, when they've done that with children, they've done there have been two studies that were done 2012, 2014, I think, in Italy and in the UK, and they mm-hmm. were seeing how they could use Imagine Contact to uh, improve attitudes towards immigrants. I see. So they did these studies with children. And um, it's just the problem is they're just isolated studies. And yeah, yeah. No, this makes and- a lot of sense. I think I've heard this before. Um, the imagined contact, I think, plays a lot into what we talk about in like somewhat um, in diversity and apps when we talk about kids needing needing to uh, to see themselves reflected in absolutely uh, in the media they consume. But it also goes to um, kids who, you know, a, a child who's, um, who's, who's white seeing a minority lead character, sort of, there's an impact there as well. And sort of, we talk a lot about how, um, how children need to see them themselves, meaning, you know, children who aren't normally represented in children's media, but it also works the other way. I think there's a, there's a lot, um, that happens being able to see, um, you know, like I think of it just as simple as like star Wars, you know, Ray being the main character, um, who is a girl and, you know, now boys, when they, they see that, they sort of say, okay, they're like, I want to be Ray or like when they imagine and they're, and they're playing with, they're like, I want to be Ray. So, um, I think there's a lot of power there. The imagined contact one makes a lot of sense. And I think, Absolutely. um, both of these things, that, like, obviously the, um, 
the intergroup contact direct is obviously pretty challenging um, with an app, but you sort of um, you sort of have it where the the immersion experience um, creates some of that feeling, and then but the indirect piece is, is definitely there. You know, you you can um, you sort of are are seeing this this child and you can sort of imagine it so I think so all of the um, the app clearly is is built on on this research right yeah absolutely and it's at, it's not in any way it's trying to encourage direct contact right, right. we want more people to have diverse friends that's yeah. basically from a young exactly. age that's exactly. the bottom line yeah and, and so when yeah. you what age um, what age were you targeting when you started and sort of was Sebastian the guinea pig to sort of to test these things out? <laughs> Poor kid, yes. <laughs> okay. um, That's how it goes. You right? know, basically, I, I thought I was targeting really little kids, like, mm-hmm. you know, like three to six maybe. Sure. Um, so we looked for children to participate and be in the stories for a six to eight age range because we thought, okay, younger kids look up to them. That's fine. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but what we found then, so the first kids to actually experience the stories were mm-hmm. often, or older children to experience the stories, were often the kids who were narrating them for us. I see. And um, in, it's easier if you have a child who's a good reader, who can read with expression, because that makes it sound more realistic. And so those kids were generally in the like six to eight, or eight to ten range. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it was even hard to do the recording because they just had so many questions about the pictures of what they were seeing and about the right. child. Right. And then I started realizing, you know what, this, this, this type of format works for a much larger range, age range. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, older kids, they know they're not actually interacting with Valdo. <laughs> yeah. So it, it works on a different level for them. Yeah. Uh, but it's still fascinating to them because it's not often that you get to feel like you're having such an intimate experience with somebody that you would not necessarily otherwise meet. Right, right. And what does the research say, like in terms of um, when biases start to um, start to take hold? I thought I saw something that on your site that said like as as young as four. Is that right? Actually, it's like it's it's probably younger than that. Oh, wow. three to four, you know, so they know that babies, um, even babies recognize, um, (laughs) different people's faces. And so they've done research where like Asian babies respond more quickly to Asian parents who are talking to them, Asian adults, the same for white, same for black, but they've done research on more of the like implicit and explicit bias. Mm-hmm. Starting starting with like three and four years, and they nice. found, um, yeah, children start to prefer their own, prefer people from their own group, whatever group that is, huh. um, and some of the, I guess, more scary research to me is um, that as children age, they also realize it's not okay to be explicitly biased. So that's mm-hmm. good. But <laughs> the, the implicit bias doesn't go away. Right. 
right. so they can yeah, I, test. I, I, I've read two. Th- I've read one thing that was sort of um, that parents, like when parents don't even address it, sort of when they don't talk about race or they don't talk about sort of um, other differences, that sort of creates a bias within the child themselves. And then they've done studies where. Um, you know, a parent will or, or a child will, will be asked certain questions and sort of come off with racially insensitive um, thoughts or, or, or speech and sort of the parent is so shocked. And I think a lot of what you're talking about is sort of like, listen, you can't just ignore these things. Like the the, the app is sort of um, saying that, yes, this person is different from you, but they do the same things you do and sort of here's how their day. And that breaks down the, uh, the walls that, um, that you talked about earlier. Mm -hmm. And if you feel like you have, you know, in some kind of, for a young child that they are friends with these children, you hear stories about a lot of imaginary play, um, with the kids and the apps. (laughs) (laughs) And, um, you know, so if you feel like you've already had tea parties with Gabu, Right. Then, you know, when you have the opportunity to make a real friend who is different than you, it makes it much easier because you've already yeah. done that. Right, right. <laughs> That's the power of the, the simulated contact. So we kind of took, like, the premise that of imagined contact a step further. So yeah. not only, you know, and we have education materials that then you can use in a classroom to teach about writing where you're asked to imagine what you could do together or imagine, you know, how is your day different than Valdo's or the same or something like that. And that's, that, that's pretty imagine contact field stuff. But mm-hmm. the way that the app works is it's supposed to simulate direct contact. I see. <clears throat> it's supposed to get you as close as possible to feeling like you have, that you're that friends and you did this stuff right. together. Right. So, the first stories, the Gabu and Valdo stories from Haiti, mm-hmm. those are just stories from start to finish. And what we added in the next stories was this, you know, adventure option. So I don't know. I love wow. those choose your own adventure books. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> when yeah, I was yeah. Little. yeah. And so, you know, instead of just the child in the story, just talking to you and showing you around, they will say, listen, um, I want to fly kites, but before we do that, we could also do this instead. What do you want to do? And then Uh, you can choose what you want to do together. So when hmm. you read it, it can take slightly different paths. And so those are things that we've tried to build in just to make it feel like you're actually deciding together and interacting together. And um, That's cool. So um, so the the question, I I guess you you mentioned the University of Kent um, study that you guys are doing – that I guess has it already started or are are you starting it later this year? It's starting this fall and it's going to okay. be, it's actually going to be like a whole bunch of studies. Um, it's going to go over four years. That's oh, wow. what the funding is for. Mm-hmm. And it's going to look at a lot of different things related to using digital media to reduce, to tackle prejudice basically. And is it built? Is the study sort of built around the app, or is it more than more than just uh, kids interacting with the app? It's going to be focused on um, children who are using the app and their educators, their teachers, um, uh, because we're trying to make it also as you know to, to make this 
this whole subject as accessible and unscary and familiar as possible sure. for everybody. And, you know, not all teachers have had the opportunity to travel or maybe have very many diverse friends, but they also should feel empowered and capable to teach this. Yeah. yeah. Um, so we try to design our education supports to be as comprehensive as possible. So you feel like you can answer any questions the kids may have. Um, and yeah, to feel so like is, it, the, is the school like, um, are you guys, have you, you've the app itself has been downloaded, um, I guess more than 30,000 times. Have you seen the schools that you're in? Is it sort of more U S or is it all over the the world? You know, that's one of the tricky things about being mm-hmm. in the app world. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we comply with COPA and mm-hmm. that means that we don't have any tracking anything in it. Oh, so wow. I know, you know, countrywide where Yeah. I know what where my downloads are in terms of countries. Yeah. But so we run um we offer pilots to educators every year so we'll be doing one this fall so if you sign up then you can use our materials free in your class in exchange for feedback and that's how we hear really how kids in classrooms are responding to it yeah and how teachers are using it and um that's really really and so what is sort of um what has sort of been the the feedback or what's some of the feedback that you've gotten whether it's school use or home use well, from home use, we hear, I guess, different things from different ages. Um, mm-hmm. There's a lot of young kids, and they just like different features, right? Yeah. Young children don't want to do, often, the adventure option. They want to hear the story oh. from start to finish like a normal book. Like and a straight narrative. Okay. Yes, and that is what we had heard and kind of had expected from child development specialists we talked to. Mm-hmm. And we were working on it, and... Um, they don't want to record themselves necessarily. They just want to hear the story over and over and over. <laughs> I see. And when when you say younger kids, like are we like three to I five? I mean, like three and yeah, three to five. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And then when you hit, you know, five, six, seven, then they mm-hmm. really are fascinated with the language stuff I see. and answering the questions. And they like the story, but they don't need to hear that over and over. But they will do the. Um, the part where they can record themselves often and then they will sprinkle the words that they've learned into their day. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. That's neat. And I've heard really stories neat. of like girls who are like, um, hold on, mom. And they have to like go back and check the app and then they come back and they say, mm, yeah, I'm fine, mom. <laughs> so they want to <laughs> say it how Gabu says it or something like that. <laughs> and um, cool. another... Another thing we had heard, but then, you know, from a child development specialist was, you know, don't expect kids necessarily to talk about what they've seen right away. Right, right. And that doesn't mean it's not sunk in. Mm-hmm. And um, that's also something we hear, you know, we that months later, the kid will say something like, oh, you know, Janisa lives by Lake Tanganyika and I live by Lake Michigan. Uh-huh. You know, so. Right, uh, right. And, and those would be children who had used it maybe as young kids, uh-huh, uh-huh. three, four, five, and that, you know, that'll come out again at seven. Right. right That's one right. thing I like about it is when you start young enough and you offer children 
other images and yeah. other things to keep in their minds that make that normalize right that that's it's incredibly powerful yeah i think it's a way to sort of um almost make the world smaller and it's a way for them to connect what happens to them day to day to something that's you know you know really far away or someone who's really different and i think that um that makes i mean i see that with my three-year-old just sort of naturally making the connections um you know whether it's when someone visits from india and sort of him sort of trying to parallel the world of like okay how does how does my cousin navigate the world when he's in india versus how i navigate the world and so um you're right i i think things are sinking in you don't necessarily see it the next day um i think we, we as parents we sort of you know we desire this thing to to be able to see the um the effect of it right away but that doesn't necessarily mean it's just because you can't see it doesn't mean it's not having an effect so um the a a lot of this obviously has been sort of anecdotal feedback and and things like that so this study will sort of um really formalize the you know tie sort of the research do you guys have sort of key performance indicators that you're looking at or a way to sort of measure the impact the app is having in the classroom with the teachers, et cetera? Uh, that is what they are going to be absolutely developing. So we're going to be awesome. using standard. Um, they'll basically use a lot of the same scales. So this will be uh, quantitative research with, you know, like hundreds of kids. And they'll be able to um, look at those indicators I mentioned before, like perceptions of similarity yeah. and willingness to interact. But we're also going to be um, looking, they're going to develop measurements to look at more what they call novel outcomes that are more focused on preparing kids for the 21st century and that being global citizens. So things related to you know cultural openness and feeling secure with diversity. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's stuff I really like about it too because when you talk about prejudice reduction, it's... Uh, obviously really important but sure. it it's we want to move beyond that right we just don't we don't want you to just not be biased we want you to be open and excited about yeah you know being with others right and right. treating others as you know having empathy for others yeah no that's <laughs> trusting well said. others i think you're right like there's a difference between accepting and being excited about sort of something that's that may be different from you yeah um and 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 it's that that choosing to engage and choosing to trust and um you know i really i just don't want my kids growing up fearing things that are different from them because right. that's basically life everything and especially now in, you know with the more globalizing and the more we're all moving around and it's just there changes happening really fast and kids have to feel safe and happy and yeah no i i think it it there's a lot of echoes you sort of um see it just in what's happening whether it's in in europe what happened last week and sort of um what's happening here and sort of how we um engage in diversity and sort of um i think i read on someone's twitter that like you know our diversity in america is sort of our superpower right we are a country of immigrants um and all these people have sort of come together to create the country and sort of um you need to embrace that superpower and part of being able to do that is 
teaching your kids to um, to not be fearful of someone who's different, whether they look different, whether they're in a different class than you, whether they um, eat different food than you, whether they speak a different language, etc. So um, I think that it, it really echoes back to sort of your motto of making the foreign feel familiar. Um, Cause when you know, I was, I was listening to another one of your uh, podcasts uh-huh. with Vicki Katz. Oh yeah. Yeah. Talking about digital equity and something she said really stuck with me. She said that technology will not save us, but relationships will. Yeah. And, um, that's like, great. That's just, it's just absolutely true. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. I, I think when something is familiar, when something is familiar, that means you're not fearful of it and sort of, um, you've built a sort of trust with it and then with trust then becomes empathy, et cetera. So, um, and thank you so much for, uh, for taking the time. This is, this is fantastic. I think I want to bring you on in the fall to, um, once you guys kick the kick stuff off and, and find out, um, how, uh, how the study's going. Oh, absolutely. All right. Yeah. It's going to be a so- long thing. We can talk about it for many years. Yeah. Sounds <laughs> but they're going like to be it. looking at lots of different different components of it. You know, right. how does it work in a classroom that's really homogeneous versus a classroom that's really diverse? Yeah. yeah. I think there's so things. many layers to it. It'll, it'll be great to sort of stay updated. And, um, you know, we could, we could keep updates on our website as well. That'd be awesome. Oh, I'm really happy to share. Awesome. Thanks. Yeah. My pleasure.